So last night I looked this up because I didn't know what the term was, but in Hollywood, uh, there's a very uh, rigorous, it's kind of a rare style of acting uh, that takes place a lot of times in movies that you probably really like. So when there's a movie that's really good and you go, wow, why is that actor so good? That's a good actor. Um, Oftentimes, this kind of acting gets people Academy Awards. Uh, they get Best Actor Awards constantly. They usually make headline news. This kind of acting is called method acting. Method acting. It takes place when an actor immerses himself uh, into the life of the one he is to, to portray. So the more immersed he is, uh, he, he becomes to act more like the person he's trying to be like. He speaks like them, has their mannerisms down. Uh, you probably see it in a lot of movies where it's like a biographical movie or a based on a true events kind of movie. You probably don't see it like in Spider-Man because, well, let's be honest, it's not a right person. But you see it in more historical movies. So here are a couple examples. Uh, Tom, Hanks, Tom Hanks listened to hours of audio recordings uh, before he played Walt Disney in the movie called Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, he spent time with, his, with uh, Walt Disney's actual family. He interviewed some of the original workers that knew him from long ago. And he actually read the newspaper every day with a Walt Disney voice, just so he could understand how he sounded, get the tone down, get the dialect down. Uh, Jamie Foxx lost 30 pounds and glued his eyelids shut for 14 hours a day while he played Ray Charles in a movie. So 14 hours a day, eyes shut, just to be like Ray Charles, right? just to learn. Uh, apparently, he did such a good job that he would actually be left alone on set, and they'd forget where he was because he was blind. He couldn't figure out how to get back to the set. So he did a pretty good job, apparently. Uh, then last one is Daniel Day-Lewis. He's in, I don't know how many movies, and he, everything he's in, he's good in. Uh, one of my favorites, he's in one called Last of the Mohicans. Uh, he learned how to track, hunt, and skin animals, as well as how to fire and reload his 12-pound flintlock rifle uh, on the run. And he learned how to make canoes, too. So just, just for a movie, he just did all these things to act like what the person he, he was going to be. Many actors go to great lengths. They surround themselves. They change where they live. They even like be they're, they're the person offset oftentimes. So you can just think, think like this man, be like him, and begin to act like who you're trying to be. From talking with accents, going, uh, sometimes they go by their act, uh, their uh, the person they're portraying, they go by their name outside of the show, like at home, so they can just become more like the person. They learn the skills people are acting like, and they even live in the places identical to where the people they're portraying. So the question you're probably asking is why? What is the point? That's just a lot of work, just to be like someone else, to be immersed in the person, to be like them. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, has a very simple command, but a very hard command. It says this, for Christians, be imitators of God as beloved children. So, it's a command. So how can we as Christians be imitators of God? I'm glad you asked. The Bible tells you very simply. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, immerse yourself, be in, right? Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as, I kept, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So God actually cares about your joy. He cares about you being like Christ. And how do you be like Christ? Well, you abide in His love. What's mean to abide in His love? Again, you guys ask a lot of really good questions. I'll tell you how. John chapter 8, verse 31 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in my word, 
you are truly my disciples. So the way to abide, to immerse yourself in the love of God, to be like him, is to abide in his word. It's very simple, right? And my hope for today is to hold up the love of God as if it was a really big diamond. Apparently, uh, Patrick Mahomes bought his wife, I believe it was her engagement ring. It cost about three quarters of a million dollars. So it's probably a very large diamond. So my goal today is that we would just hold up the love of God and just turn it slow and just look at it. We would just see, wow, this is huge. This is a lot bigger than I thought. If you remember last week, 1 Corinthians 13 is a very popular wedding text, but it's also a very painful passage. Like, man, I'm just not that way. But Christ is, right? And that's what we're going to look at today, and I hope you see it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that, by beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one glory, from one degree of glory to another. And as a pastor, as a Christian, as a fellow Christian with all, all of you, that is all that I want. I want you to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That is all I want for you, for myself. And I hope by looking at the love of God very simply, by hearing, we can be transformed. It's very, very simple. So let's, let's look. Look at verse... Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, the first section here. Love is patient. So patience or long-suffering, right? The opposite of a, a quick temper. Uh, if you think of patience, think of a, a candle with a very long candle wick burning very, very slow. That's what patience is, right? It takes a long time. It's a slow burn. In the Old Testament, one of the favorite characteristics of the Lord is to actually call himself something like this. He says this. A God, so God calls himself a God merciful and gracious. Do you, do you know the next phrase? Slow to anger, right? Um, I took a Hebrew at Midwestern. Uh, one of the few things in Hebrew I remember is this, is in the Hebrew when it says that God is slow to anger, the, word, like, the, the two words you literally read are long nose. So God in the Bible has a long nose. What does that mean? When we think of anger, you think your nostrils flaring up, right? Well, God is... He has a long nose, very patient. It takes a long time for his nostrils to flare, right? So God is very patient. Consider the patience and the forbearance of God towards the Israelites and the other nations in the Bible. If you think of people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the book of Judges is just a book of God's patience for not just blowing people out of the water all the time. Um, in Genesis 15, God says that he's going to permit the nation of the Amalekite to uh, despise God. He gives them 400 years to repent. Uh, that is longer than we have been a country. It's a lot of patience. Uh, he sent 16 prophets. Those are just the books we have in the Bible that are prophets to the people of Israel to beckon them, to re reprove them, to call them to repent, to plead with them, to judge them. God sends many judges and leaders in the Bible, and he continued to bear up with the Israelites. Psalm 7 verse 11 says this, that God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Did you know that the average lifespan of a person on earth, typically, we think, again, average, right, is about 72 years. So that means that there are six-ish billion people every day, many of whom do not love the Lord, and God bears with them for about 72 years per person. Some much longer, some much shorter, but that's extremely extremely patient. Uh, it took God six days to create the world, but often he puts up with us for decades of rebellion, right? 
God's love is seen as patience towards the ungodly ones. Second Peter chapter 3 says that God is patient towards people who are not Christians so that they would actually be converted. Again, he's patient in larger ways and lesser ways to other people, but he is immensely patient. Even greater still, consider the patience of Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Uh, Spurgeon said that the infinite became an infant. Would you ever volunteer to become a baby? Well, we were, but we didn't volunteer, right? But to stoop down from being God and becoming, I'm going to become a baby. I'm going to humble myself as an infant. The creator of time, who stood outside of time, lived for 33 years. Most of that time, he was rejected, betrayed, mocked, scorned, hated, persecuted, spat on, beaten, bloodied, and nailed to a cross for sinners who actually want pretty much nothing to do with him. Would you consider that patient? Consider the love of Christ towards many of you prior to becoming a Christian. How long until you responded with repentance and faith? Uh, Charlene's not here, but she told me she became a believer a decade-ish ago. That's extremely patient. I mean, consider your conversion. God could just wipe you off the map before you were born. But he was patient. How many years of rebellion as, as a teenager, as a high schooler, or just in college, or even in your life before you were converted? Being cold-hearted, and yet God was patient towards us. So why did Christ extend mercy to me? Why did he extend mercy to you? Have you ever thought about that? I think one day Kay brought that up. I just laid in bed one day thinking, why did God save me? It's a tremendous question. I think the Bible gives you a pretty good answer. Here's what it says. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. This is probably the key verse for me in college when I was about 19. That just gripped me. I don't know why. I just did. It says this. <clears throat> but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost sinner, right, the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So if you were a Christian, God saved you so you would be a trophy of his perfect patience. Isn't that something? So you were saved so you would be a trophy of Christ. Yep, I can save that guy right there. But he's stubborn. Yes, he is. That's why he saved you. So brothers and sisters who are believers today, consider the patience of Christ towards you. How many sins do you commit every single day? How often do we forget he who is infinitely worthy? Jesus is so bright, so glorious that the angels can't look upon him because of his radiance and his beauty. And yet, if you're like me, sometimes you can yawn at reading the Bible. You can go hours or maybe even days without thinking of him. And yet the scriptures give us command after command after command, if you're like me, you fall short of many of those commands day after day after day in heart, word, desire, deed, action, thought, everything. What if God's patience towards us was proportional to your patience towards others? The problem with America is we have something called Amazon delivery, and boy, are they snappy fast. It is fantastic. It has trained us to think, if it's not here today, I'm already angry. I ordered it last night. Why isn't it here? At 6 a.m. when my kids wake me up, I'm immediately extremely impatient. Automatically, if God was that way towards me, he would just, he'd be done with me. Is your patience very patient? I'm going to give you three or four quick ways to grow in patience. They're very, very simple. Then we'll go into the next one. So how can I grow in patience? Well, 
slow down, I'll tell you. Don't be so impatient about it. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. First, first, you have to have the Holy Spirit, right? So the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, right? So that's one of them. So if you're a Christian, you actually can do this. So number one, uh, they all start with the letter R because that's what Baptists do. Uh, recognize God's complete sovereignty in your life. So God has ordered your life, the timing of it, from the micro to the macro, from when you wake up to the traffic you're going to see, to the weather you're going to have, to how long you're going to live, the smallest things to the biggest things, meaning we should not buck against God's sovereignty. We should, this is your plan, I'm going to trust you. We should happily submit to God's governing. Number two, remember your need for God's patience. So when we sin and fall short, we think, man, brother, I'm sorry, can you just be patient with me? That's what what we do, right? But when someone sins against us, what do we do? Hey, Why'd you do that? Right? So we should, if we expect God to be patient with us, we should be patient with our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our family, our parents, our grandparents, our grandchildren, whatever it is. Repent of your selfish standards, your gauge of patience. Instead, we should use God's measurement of patience, which again is to be slow. It is not about us. It's taking too long. It's not really about you. I tell myself that all the time. It's not really about you, Kale. Traffic isn't centered around your car, believe it or not. And lastly, realize that you have pockets of patience in your life. When you stand in line, when you're stuck in traffic, at those moments, instead of being like me and grumbling, you should pray. Lord, help me to be patient. I'm extremely impatient. Help me to just wait and to trust you. To rest, to think about a Bible verse, something like that. So by by God's grace, may we be patient in suffering, patient in life, patient towards one another, and fight our impatience with the patience of Christ towards us. Number two, so love is patient and love is kind. So not only does God restrain his anger, right, and patience, because he does restrain it, but God actually acts towards us positively in kindness. Our Lord preserves, perseveres in patience and also acts in kindness. So God is not just neutral saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to withhold something, I'm not going to be angry. He also acts positively in goodness and love towards us. Uh, We will sooner drain the ocean than drain God's kindness. He is an ocean of mercy and a fountain of grace. The Bible simply says that love comes from God because God is love. All of creation gets God's love regardless of who they are, what they do. All of God's acts in the world are kindness. Just as all of honey is sweet, there's nothing that he does that is ever wrong He is never cruel or harsh. He is always kind and good. And the good news is, is that we have not drawn God's kindness to us. There's nothing in us that I've done to make God say, oh, I'll be kind to Kale. It's actually in spite of me that God is kind. God moved first, right? God lavishes in kindness upon us every day, not because we've drawn it, but because it flows from him naturally. And yet the Bible says that God is ignored by the vast majority of people because of our natural sin inclination, right? The Bible says this in Luke chapter 6, that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Uh, We call this common grace. So common grace is is the grace that all people get in common. Very simple, right? So if you want to think about what common grace is, consider the fact that most people you meet have two eyes, two ears, two legs, two hands, and have food in their mouth typically. Uh, they have a bed, they have a house, they have a job, they, they can laugh, they can 
look at things. They can breathe in fresh air. Right? These are all things that are common to all men. And all of that is undeserved. Every random act or good deed you see on the news, you see in person, done to you, uh, people have done to them, um, even by unbelievers, that is actually God working through an unbeliever to do what God wants to them. Isn't that interesting? So when someone pays your, your food at the drive-thru who's, who's not a Christian, God did that. Yeah, yes, they gave the money, certainly, but that was God's kindness working through them for your good. Isn't that gracious and kind? So God desires to break hearts, with, to break hearts not with a hammer, but he actually desires to break hearts by melting them with his love. Stephen Charnock wrote this. What do our simple daily joys mean? Is God pretending to be our friend? Is he setting us up for some nasty surprise? Or is God sending us signals every day that his heart is loving and kind, so kind that we can go back to him in, in repentance and find his arms open to us? The Bible says that God's kindness in Romans chapter 2 is actually meant to lead you to repentance. So if you're not a Christian or if you're wayward as a Christian, God's kindness is not so you would abuse it. It's so you would say, wow, he's extremely kind. Why would I act like a fool? Why would I do that? Why would I forget him on purpose? And of course, the greatest demonstration of God's kindness is Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At our worst, God offered us the best, namely his son. So today, God offers free pardon to any sinner. The good news of the gospel is any sinner, all of their sins can be removed. Have you considered that? That there's no one who's so lost or too poor in their sins that Christ cannot wipe clean as if nothing has ever happened. So today, God would call us to respond in repentance and faith, to embrace the kindness of God on the cross, and to acknowledge Him as Savior. And He removes all of our sin, all of our guilt, and gives us nothing but mercy, grace, and kindness instead. My brothers, as, a, as members of a church, consider God's kindness to you. If you're a Christian, I want you to think about this. Is it not, is it not an act of unkindness? Is it not a mere act of God's kindness towards you that God unmasked your sin and revealed Christ to you? Is it not loving that you, for some reason, instead of, instead of people that you know, you love Christ and they don't? That you love going to see other brothers and sisters in Christ? that you want to be holy, that you loathe your sin. Brothers, may we not forget that God's kindness to you is the fact that you are a believer. It is not merited. It is not because we figured it out. It is nothing but sheer, sovereign, free kindness. We must not think that we love the Lord and others don't because of some advantage we have or some, or some disadvantage in others, but only God's mercy. Romans 11 says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. So again, how can we as believers live and exist as God who is kind to us? Again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Pausing here. Kindness, all right? So as a Christian, you actually can be kind in a way that pleases God. 
Ephesians 4 says to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how many times should you forgive those who sin against you? The Bible says seven times 70. Well, don't do the math. It doesn't mean do the math. What it means is stop counting. It just doesn't matter. Whether it's the hundredth time or the 1,000th time. Husbands, wives, moms, dads, kids, grandkids, when someone in your family sins against you, when you sin against them, you should be forgiven because God forgives you and has forgiven you an uncountable amount of times. That is the gospel. So remembering the kindness of God towards me helps me to repent of my sin, rising up saying, oh, they don't deserve it, Kale. And what should you think? Neither do I. That would be wrong. Every fiber in my being says, oh, they don't deserve it, right? Again, repent, force that down, right? Look to Christ. And as a church, we must measure kindness with biblical categories. Friends, as, as fellow believers, it is kind to warn others of their sin. It is kind to correct one another in love. It is kind to build one another up. It is kind to serve others. We should be tenderhearted, have a loving disposition towards those in Christ, because that's how Christ's heart is towards us. So number three, love does not envy. So first, there's two positives. So love is these things. So be like this. And now Paul's saying, but don't you be like this. And back the truck up here. Don't be like this, right? Love doesn't do these things. Love doesn't envy. This is what love is not like, right? Uh, we often think that envy and jealousy are very similar. Uh, I think they are, but I think they're ugly cousins, they're different, but they're pretty similar, okay? Sorry to any cousins who have ugly cousins, okay? Uh, jealousy can be good, right? Jealousy is a good thing. If you're a husband or a wife and your spouse is slipping out on you, should you be jealous? Boy, I hope you are. I hope you're raging with jealousy, right? Jealousy can be good. The Bible says that God's name is jealous and that he's a jealous God. However, God, the Bible, the Bible never says, is envious, so jealousy desires what belongs to you, or maybe what you think if you're wrong, but envy covets, becomes angry with what others have, that, well, that's theirs, but oh, I want that, right? It's not fair that they have and I don't. That's envy, right? Mr. Envy has many children, bitterness, hatred, grumbling, discontentment. Envy does not delight in the joys of others. He does not celebrate the wins of others. He's extremely, extremely prideful and self-centered. Thus, when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, was, was Jesus ever an envious man? Well, no, he never envied, right? He who owns the galaxy came into the world possessing nothing. He upholds creation, yet he had nowhere to lay his head. But the Bible says that Jesus was not an envier. He didn't envy anybody. He was tempted as we are, but yet without sin. So why did Jesus not have a problem with envy? Why do we have a problem with envy? Because we all do. It's it's in us. It's in our heart, right? Why is that? The need of every human heart is to know, love, and treasure great things, captivating things. I think I've said before, there's a reason why we go uh, to like the Grand Canyon just to look at it. You can't buy really anything. You can't buy a rock. You can't buy dirt. You just go like this. That's beautiful. And then what happens? All right, let's go. Right? You're done. Like in a day, maybe, half a day. That was pretty cool. You see something great, yeah, that was all right. 
right? We're made to see great things. And the Bible says on earth, nothing is actually enough for you. We always find that there are better versions. There are prettier people. There are bigger houses. There are nicer jobs. There's bigger incomes. It's just never enough. Uh, one saint who passed away named Jeremiah Burroughs writes this. I want you to hear this is extremely, this guy writes a very vivid imagery. I want you to hear it. It's very helpful. Just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should open his mouth and take in the wind. And then think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not had enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to crave or to suitable to a craving stomach. Do you, you get what he's saying there? When you look at the things of the world, you wonder, man, I have all this stuff or I want all this stuff. Why don't I feel like it's enough? Do, do, do I need more air? Do I need more stuff? No, the Bible would just say your heart's just not made for that. You're not... These things aren't satisfying your soul because you're not meant to be satisfied in things, right? In gifts. So Jesus said this in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Again in John 5, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus prayed in the garden, as you probably know, not my will, but yours be done. So what does it mean? Jesus did not, did not envy, though he was a man like us, he did not envy because his heart was satisfied and happy in God. Jesus loved the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength, and thus he could love his neighbor as himself. Envy dies in a heart that seeks God. Loving and treasuring God removes all matter of bitterness and envy and discontentment. Why is that? What does Psalm 23 verse 1 say? You guys know this text. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm not going to envy. Why, why would I want to envy anything else? It's only by loving Christ and seeking to be satisfied in Him that we can truly love our brothers well. When our eyes are fixated on Christ, we shall not look with envy. And again, at the cross, we see our soul's desire. He who is infinitely worthy and beautiful and treasured, suffering for our sins of envy to bring us to God. There's a hymn that just simply says, the lamb is all the glory. And that is true. Jesus suffered to give you everlasting joy in God. Do you know that? So the only way to remove a low affection in our heart is to replace it with a better one. The Bible asks you this question. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Does Jesus Christ satisfy you? Is he enough? Friends, when we love Christ, we will not envy. Yes, we're still going to wrestle with it. I've wrestled with it too. Uh, my favorite example of not envying is uh, there's a baseball player named Aaron Judge, right? Judge, who just broke the record for most home runs in a season for the league. And every single player on his team, do you know what they didn't do? Well, that's not fair. You know what they did? They left in there like a bunch of little high schoolers. Yeah! I mean, they ran the field because they're happy for air. Like, he did it, he did it, he did it. They didn't envy him. They're happy. They can actually be happy for their friend, right? Only as Christians, when we're happy in God, can we actually rejoice in the good and joy of others. To be so happy in God, so happy in his rule, that we can rejoice in him showing grace to other people. Do you understand that? When you love Christ so much, and he's good to someone else, better than you, you can say, man, look how good he is to them. You don't have to envy. Thomas Watson writes this. God shows more love in giving us Christ than in giving us crowns and kingdoms. 
God may give a man many worldly things and hate him. God may give others a little gold and silver, but if he gives you Christ, he gives you all that he ever had. If you have Christ, you have everything. So may God grant us such a love for him that envy is just ripped from our hearts. Lastly, love does not boast and love is not arrogant. I grouped those last two together because they're very, very, kind of like two sides of the same coin. Uh, Paul uses a, a word here in the original language that literally means to brag. So boasting, as you know, literally means bragging. We probably all know that. If you've ever played any kind of sport in your entire life, you know, there's a lot of showboaters and they're called braggers, right? There's a city in Missouri called Brag City. I don't know why they're so proud, but anyway. Uh, boasting, is the mouth of, boasting is the mouth of pride and arrogance, right? Uh, boasting is the going public of what we think about ourselves. So arrogance thinks of self. Uh, boasting talks of self, right? It's comparing ourselves to others. Six out of the seven times in the Bible that this word for arrogance is used is used in 1 Corinthians. So if you're wondering, the church in Corinth had a few problems. One was boasting. One was pride. It was arrogance, right? So here's a question that we actually covered a bit this morning uh, with Don Ray in Sunday school. Why is boasting wrong? That's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? What's wrong with boasting? I, I like what I have. Why is it wrong? Boasting and arrogance are wrong because they are built on a false assumption that you are what you are and that you have what you have because of you. Arrogance is self-deceiving. It's a traitor. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, probably one of the most, I think, painful verses for me to, to cite in a sermon. Every time I read it, I go, oh, man, that one got me again. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do you see what Paul is saying? You see anything different in yourself, good, bad, otherwise. Well, that's because of me. Paul is saying, is there anything you own that you did not receive? You've earned nothing. Friends, everything about our lives advantages or opportunities, strengths. Uh, many of us have stories where this was perfect timing. This just happened to happen, and therefore I got this job or I got this scholarship or made this whatever, right? Perfect timing moments, we'll have those. Financial needs, education, upbringing, backgrounds, whether good, bad, or otherwise, all those are all owed and received from God. It is not because of us. First Samuel chapter 2 says this, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. First Chronicles 29 says this, Both riches and honor come from you, Lord, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So oftentimes you can think of people who are well better off. I'll give you some examples to make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> uh, Jeff Bezos owns Amazon. He, he's the second richest man in the world. Patrick Mahomes, great football player. Tom Hanks, great actor. Taylor Swift, a rich singer. All these people that we think, man, I wish I had it like that. Have they tried hard? Yes, I have no doubt about that. I'm not neglecting that at all. You should try hard. But they're all products of God's sovereignty. Before the foundations, God planned, ordained, ordered, Everything about your life, your skills, success, your strengths, your health, or your lack thereof. So to think much of self is foolish. 
Uh, Elon Musk is the wealthiest person in the world right now. He owns Tesla. I think he just bought Twitter, I believe, too. But if you compare him to God, he is like a little nine-year-old, eight-year-old, getting allowance from his mom and dad. That's what he's like. He just borrowed money. Thus, love cannot boast and it cannot be arrogant because it's a false assumption. Now, this doesn't mean, so hear, hear me really helpful here. I want to be really helpful and really kind here. This does not mean that it is wrong to have nice things. The Bible does not say that. There's not a single text that says you can't have nice stuff. It should all be garbage. It doesn't say that. It's not wrong to have possessions, to be happy with what you own, or to say, hey, come over. We got a big house. Like, come here. Come eat with us. We got a nice kitchen. It, 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 you should do those things. They're good things. Love is able to see God's providence and mercy in the lives of other brothers who have it better than we do because God did it. We should be happy about God's work in them. And love knows that all I have is by grace, apart from my works and efforts. God who gave me these things, gave them to me to be a means of showing the world that stuff is not my love, Christ is. That's why you have things. Charles Spurgeon said this, that grace puts its hand on the mouth of boasting and shuts it once for all. Spurgeon is always very helpful. Now, where is the place, brothers and sisters, where arrogance and boasting dies? Where, where is that at? Could it be the cross? Boasting, you, you, you actually can boast as a Christian in the right thing, which is the good news. So Jesus died for sinful boasting, chest puffing, arrogance, lofty eyes. He died for all the I know betters and the self-exaltation we have. Our pride deserves God's death penalty, the Bible says. So Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating that he alone has all power and all authority. Um, have you ever been upped by somebody? Like they went up you? Like, oh, I got a base hit. I got a home run yesterday, Kale. Okay, sorry, back off, right? You're obviously better than I am, right? Well, to put it very simply, Jesus did not just gently one-up you. He one-upped everybody. He defeated death and sin. He is supreme. Third, salvation itself can only happen apart from boasting and pride. The Bible says this, that you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may what? Boast. It's very simple. To become a Christian, you can't boast because you're unboastworthy, right? Only Christ is. So we must renounce our love and trust in self and look to Christ. Faith looks away from self and looks to Christ. So friends, I want to end here. That the love of Christ for you is warm. It is never cold nor old. It is not age or become weary. The Bible says his mercies for you are new every morning. It is his nature to be loving and tender towards his elect. Christ loves you as, as with an everlasting love. A love, the Bible says, that is stronger than death. Unlike our love for him, Christ's love for you, it, it does not ebb and flow. It does not grow faint or fade away. First John says that he loved us first. That's why we love him. Ephesians 1 says that God chose you in Christ because of love, not because of anything in us. Brothers, Jesus loves you as if you were the only person on the planet. Have you thought about that? It's a holy love. It's a perfecting love. God's love for you is richer than an emotional, romantic love. God desires your holiness more than you do, so you would grow to love him. He seeks to rid you of yourself, 
so Christ would look brighter because he loves you. God afflicts us and disciplines us, hurts us in life, spanks us, so to speak, the Bible says, because he loves you. Every pain, every trial, every affliction for the Christian is labeled in love if we would only read it with the eyes of faith. The Bible says that God tells us no to our prayers because he loves you better than that. He seeks to awaken a greater faith in you for him by speaking his word to you because he loves you. I want to read you this passage. A guy named Octavius Winslow wrote this. His incarnation is love stooping. His sympathy is love weeping. His compassion is love supporting. His grace is love acting. His teaching is the voice of love. His silence is the repose of love. His patience is the restraint of love. His obedience is the labor of love. His suffering is the travail of love. His cross is the altar of love. His death is the burnt offering of love. His resurrection is the triumph of love. His ascension into heaven is the enthronement of love. And his sitting down at the right hand of God is the intercession of love. Could it be any better? The Bible says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As is written, we're being killed for your sake all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.